Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Caring on the Go for the May 2023 issue. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, highlighting the May 2023 issue of Caring. Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings, through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Beth, welcome back to Caring on the Go. Thanks, Carl. I'm, I'm thrilled to be back. We've had a lot of issues recently, so... Um, a lot of that's, podcasts. That's good, right? It's keeping yes. busy, uh, keeps you out of trouble and all that good stuff. Definitely. All right. So we'll kick off today's session talking about Christine Kilgore's article on obesity in post-acute and long-term care from page one of the May issue of Caring. This is a remarkably complex topic and one that can cause so much suffering on many different levels. Uh, I do like the article's emphasis on reducing stigma and on recognizing the multifactorial etiologies of obesity, I believe using a medical model rather than sort of the old school uh, labeling a person as as uh, having no willpower or being a weak person, it just seems like a much more productive approach to treat it medically, right? Uh, kind of similar to how substance use disorders used to be regarded. So the experience of weight stigma has been linked to exercise avoidance, um, being sedentary, and the development of unhealthy eating habits. And additionally, avoiding necessary health care. I've had patients say to me that they'll avoid um, coming in to for their medical follow-up because they don't want to get on the scale. Um, and so I think we need to keep all of those things in mind when we're working um, with our patients who have larger body size. And know that any discussions about weight loss and long-term care should really focus on clinical goals and person-specific benefits. Um, so things like minimizing joint pain, improving mobility, improving um, cardiovascular health, um, or reducing the risk of urine, urinary incontinence, rather than so much focusing on the excess weight. Yeah, that seems like a practical practical approach. You know, one thing just in clinical practice uh, as a medical director, 
uh, I know the facilities where I work are very reluctant to uh, admit uh, these bariatric type patients. Uh, it's, uh, I'm sure it's very un-PC to use this language, but I mean, it's kind of the elephant in the room is that if somebody weighs 450 pounds and they require extensive assistance for transfers, that person's going to need, you know, maybe there's uh, four staff that have to assist uh, for every transfer, right? And then bathing and, and all those things. And obviously that is a real concern for a facility that's already having enough trouble, uh, you know, maintaining enough staff to, to meet the needs of the residents. So I don't know any comments about that. And, you know, how how does the facility, um, you know, kind of justify that? I mean, it's the right thing to do. These people need to be taken care of, but, but uh, how do you, how do you make that work in your, in your overall, I guess, financial scheme? And then anything else, uh, any other good take-home points from this article? So, I, I mean, it will take some financial resources um, to, to be prepared to take care of, um, those who have more significant obesity. It's important to have adequate bariatric equipment for these residents so that if you're going to admit them, you really need to have the equipment that's there to take care of them as well as to support the staff. Um, one of the um, individuals who was interviewed for this also talked a lot about um, preparing staff for uh, transferring individuals of larger size. Um, because this is something that they typically don't learn um, in school. And um, just care really should focus on the risk of skin breakdown, uh, minimizing that risk by diligently cleaning, um, and then also really helping staff um, as well as those in administrative uh, roles to assess their own biases about weight and uh, you know, address this with um, sensitivity. There are uh, several wonderful resources at the very end of the article. I'm going to mention just three of them mm -hmm. that I hope um, we'll get to some of the answers of your questions. One is a Bariatric Safe Patient Handling and Mobility Guide. It was published in uh, 2015. And um, there's another one called the Nursing Home Obesity Toolkit. Um, that's out of University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And it covers um, information about adequate equipment, staff training, daily care, um, resident dignity, and, and more. And then one on weight bias in healthcare, um, which is a guide for healthcare providers working with individuals affected by obesity. And that was um, put out in 2016 by the Obesity Action Coalition. And that one focuses mostly on bias. In addition, we're going to have another article um, in our June-July issue where um, Paige Hector, our associate editor, is going to address more in terms of uh, reducing stigma and bias. Uh, where long-term care is being asked to provide care to um, patients with and residents with lots of different um, diseases and, and disorders, and um, those with substance abuse, um, mental health issues. Um, we've always taken care of people with um, significant um, medical comorbidities, and this is one of them. And so I, I think um, we need to prepare ourselves, given that roughly in the U.S. population today, um, around 40% of individuals meet the, the definition of obesity. 
um, by a BMI standard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that, those sound like some really good resources. And I, I do think my observation is that, you know, younger people are less, they have less of that sort of implicit bias than uh, kind of an old fart like me. And, I, you know, I, I have to admit, I, I went and watched my niece's volleyball team. She's, she plays college volleyball. And um, I, you know, the thought entered my mind, you know, these some of these um, young women playing volleyball don't look like volleyball players. I mean, they've just got a lot more natural padding than I remember volleyball players having back in the day. Um, and then I thought to myself, well, that's not a very, I mean, they're athletes. They made the team, you know? Uh, so I guess I've got a little bit of work to do on that, but, um, and I also think, you know, people with especially significant, you know, obesity, uh, may have trauma histories around the way they've been treated. Uh, and that's another thing that we obviously need to be mindful of. Yes, absolutely. I, there was an assisted living facility that participated in a research study um, with myself and um, Bar- Barbara Resnick. And they actually, um, their staff was very well trained in working with individuals of larger size and admitted people um, for weight loss purposes. Hmm. Um, these were some people just um, were doing it in preparation for bariatric surgery. They tended to be a little younger, um, but not all. And um, they they had some good success. Huh. So it you know it it can be done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, caloric restriction obviously can work, uh, and to some degree, you can control people's dietary intake in a nursing home. I mean, of course, there's vending machines and whatnot, but anyway. Um, but it but it did focus on really an interdisciplinary approach with um, exercise and support and counseling. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, great. Um, so, Beth, our next article is your caring collaborative article on page two, entitled Three Strategies to Improve Training and Education in Post-Acute Long-Term Care. I thought this was fabulous. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and just give us a nutshell version of these three strategies and how they work. I know our listeners care deeply about effective education and training skills. Sure. So this I got the idea for this article while I was at AMDA's annual conference. And in one of the sessions, um, there was some really good, lively discussion about how we do training now that um, there's a big push to uh, move people through rapidly and how do we have to reconfigure things. And so these three points were kind of what I came up with after thinking about it a little more. Um, So one um, is called micro learning. And it's basically a a newer, sexier term for an older concept. (laughs) Older concept is called spaced learning theory or distributed learning. And I guess nowadays that's that doesn't sound quite as good. Yeah, I like does, micro learning. You know what? Micro learning because I feel like I sometimes I have a micro brain these days. So that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. So it promotes the use of um, multiple short learning sessions that are separated by intervals. And um, you know, f- for those of us who are old enough to have used flashcards. Um, that's an example of micro learning because um, you, you did it quickly and then you put them down for a while and then you did it again quickly. Um, 
it, it condenses the educational content and there's breaks and gaps between learning and repetition. So all of that is really integral to this particular learning strategy. And it helps to avoid um, kind of uh, cognitive overload that we have when we sit in a long session or an in-service. And so there's just this greater chance of shifting that knowledge um, into our long-term memory. The second one is called experiential learning, and, and this one's kind of a no-brainer. We all know that um, when we have to solve problems or apply knowledge in the clinical uh, um, arena or even in role plays or during simulations, um, we, we learn better. Um, experiential learning involves kind of guided, directed learning experience that also is focused with some um, reflection often uh, provided by an instructor. Uh, so I told the story in this um, article about when I was in uh, my NP program, I really was not good with rashes. And there was one of um, the my physician preceptors who was very into dermatology. And I shared this with him and he said, okay, we're going to give you lots of experience with derm. And every time a patient came in with a rash, he would call me on the intercom to come and see them. Uh -huh. And it, it, you know, it really helped having that, um, um, you know, repeated, but it, you know, all those different experiences made a difference. And I'm, I'm happy to say I'm much better with it now. And then the last um, bit of learning is, is something that we uh, tend to ignore. Uh, many of us know Benjamin Bloom. He's an educational psychologist, and he was the gentleman that came up with the concept of three domains of learning, cognitive, psychomotor, and affective. And we know in healthcare and in training, there's really a greater focus on cognitive and psychomotor learning. But affective learning is, is special in that it's focused on feelings and emotions and it really helps to develop or um, or change or challenge beliefs, and it can result in change behavior. So if you can somehow give um, your learners an experience that you want them to have a deeper understanding about, it make a big difference um, in, in how they'll see um, the resident. So if you can put them basically in the resident shoes, it, it can make a it can make a big difference. Yeah. And I don't think we get a whole lot of training in those sort of affective uh, techniques. And they can be so important in our communication skills too. And in uh yeah, empathy and and just acknowledging the emotion that others are having and that. So uh great stuff, great strategies. Thank you for kind of synthesizing that into three excellent bullet points. Thanks, Carl. All right. Well, next, we're going to talk about an article by our nutritional consultant, Phyllis Famularo, discussing current recommendations for protein requirements in older adults. You know, nutrition is so important in our post-acute and long-term care residents, and sometimes it's really a challenge to stay on top of it. Uh, and, you know, if a, if a facility has a $3.75 a day food budget, for resident, that doesn't help uh, sometimes either. So uh, anyway, what did you find most valuable in this article, Beth? So there were a couple things. Actually, I really enjoyed this article. I, I, I thought it gave a nice overview. Um, Phyllis um, spent some time talking about the International Study Group of the European Union Geriatric Medicine Society um, called uh, Prot-Age Study Group. So they were specifically looking at protein and um, 
developed recommendations, you know, kind of after pulling this group together. And while for healthy individuals, um, the recommended uh, protein intake is um, around 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram for body weight per day. Um, it is um, a, a little bit higher, um, 1 to 1 1.2 um, for older adults. And so just taking that as a, a basic, she went into other areas that I found intriguing. One was, should you use plant or animal protein? And um, what she shared in terms of um, plant protein is that while it, it helps to reduce the risk of um, cardiovascular disease mortality, um, many older adults do not fully embrace plant proteins. Um, and so that if you're increasing them and not doing the lean meats, they may wind up taking a, a decrease in their total protein intake anyway. Actually, That's she cited, yeah, yeah, she cited one study that said that the plant protein group had a 22% decrease in total protein intake. That's which, fascinating. Yeah. Uh, which was not good. Um, and so the, the other thing that um, she talked about were high quality proteins and trying to integrate more of this into residents' diets and high quality proteins um, have um, multiple amino acids in them, things like eggs, salmon, lean meats, um, soy, and uh, dairy proteins. And then um, lastly, she talked about um, the spacing of protein intake, particularly for older adults. So that um, if you can increase the protein in breakfast and lunch um, for older adults, where at that point, it, those meals tend to be low in protein in, in the uh, in an American diet. So if you can increase them, it helps to um, treat sarcopenia, improve uh, uh, absorption. And so consuming higher protein intakes at breakfast and lunch really helps overall protein intake. Um, and then if you couple it with a little bit of resistive exercise within three hours of taking that protein in, it also helps even more with absorption. So all good tips. Wow. That make is, the most yeah, of your protein. That is just so much practical information. I, I hope our listeners are taking notes or, you know, get the article and, and take a look at it. So uh, what do you think, Beth? Should we be uh, um, discouraging our, our older residents from being on vegan diets now? <laughs> no, I, th I, I, I mean, if it's something that they came in doing, um, yeah. not necessarily because those are individuals that um, are already used to that type of a diet, um, the plant proteins. But if uh, they're if they're switching from more of a meat-based protein to a plant-based, that's often where we find that their protein um, intake decreases. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's person-centered care, but I, I mean, it, this actually may be something that I need to at least discuss. I guess, what would you say it was 27%? Uh, it was 22% yeah. decrease in total protein intake. Uh, I guess you can probably make that up with volume <laughs> or something, but but uh, that's that's uh, fascinating stuff. So thank you for all that. Um, all right. So finally, we're going to wrap up with our ethics column from May, authored by Drs. Colin Burks and Katya Albert Avila. 
This is a poignant story of a nursing home resident who was dying of COVID-19, where the nurse had promised the family she would stay with them, but due to circumstances beyond her control, she had to go out of the room at the time that he actually took his last breath. So she was not there holding his hand. And understandably, she felt sad and guilty, you know, when she went back and he was gone. And I think many of our listeners have had experiences, maybe not identical to that, but are somewhat similar to that and and traumatic and and sad and made us feel like, you know, should we could we have done more? And I know that, you know, in my hospice work and, you know, with my palliative care team, there's usually a pretty robust peer support network, yet that's not always present or it's not always a given in our post-acute and long-term care facilities. So, Dr. Gallick, what are the most important points you want our listeners to appreciate about this piece? So first, I wanted to define moral distress, and it's a response that occurs when an individual is um, constrained from taking a morally correct action. So in this article, um, as you mentioned, the nurse believed it was morally correct to be with that resident um, when he was actively dying, but she was unable to stay with him due to her um, obligations to the other needs of other residents. And unlike moral uncertainty, or moral dilemmas, moral distress happens when a person is certain about the correct action. It's different from burnout, um, in which stress leads to symptoms that include things like depersonalization, exhaustion, or a reduced sense of accomplishment. And it's also different from emotional distress in which there's no moral component. And the challenge with moral distress is that if it's prolonged or repeated, it can lead to moral injury with longer lasting harm. And I think in these situations, um, you know, you hear so much about the uh, nursing shortage and how um, many nurses are, are leaving the profession. And I think, you know, COVID kind of started that and the staffing challenges that remain ongoing have continued it. Um, And, you know, there's no easy answers. I think we have to try to do the best we can in terms of paying attention to staffing and not taking more residents in than we can support. And also recognizing this with um, staff and providing support with them or having um, maybe some on-call people that could come in, um, you know, if, if there was a, you know, an acute issue where somebody really needed to be with someone else, um, you know, just drawing on your resources. But at a time of when we were in COVID, there were so many restrictions that didn't feel right in terms of, you know, having family members saying goodbye by iPad or whatever, and, and, you know, just not being able to be with people. It's very, very difficult. So I know there were some, you know, national organizations that had some pretty, uh, pretty well formed uh, support networks for healthcare workers who were suffering from from any of those conditions, uh, and uh, I just think for those of us who work in these care settings, we, to the extent we've got the ability to be supportive and acknowledge the losses and the and the difficulties people are going through uh it's much better to to acknowledge it and give a kind word or a hug or what have you um you know than to just uh be like a 
you know, that mask of professional professionalism and act like a robot, like nothing touches you. Uh, that's just my opinion, but I, I suspect a lot of our listeners feel the same way. I would agree, Carl. So uh, that's about it. Uh, I did want to mention before we wrap up, uh, there was so much additional great content in this issue, as always, uh, including a Jerry Winokur meditations column. Uh, Jerry's always so thought provoking. Uh, and I want to mention the below the fold article on page one by our senior reporter, Joanne Caldi on personality disorders and how they may go underdiagnosed in post-acute and long-term care. And uh, I don't know about you, Beth, uh, but I, I've I've never been a huge aficionado of people with um, personality disorders. Isn't that an awful thing? I, I guess I have some implicit bias I need to look at in terms of that too, especially borderline. But anyway, sorry, any of you listeners, if I just disrespected you. Uh, the uh, the DEI column also by Dr. Fatima Sheikh about. Uh, Celebrating cultural and spiritual diversity among our residents and staff was really lovely. So please read that. Uh, and Dr. Gallick, before we close, do you have any other final comments or wisdom to share on these or other articles from the issue? Sure, Carl. Um, this really was kind of a rich issue, I thought, and it was hard to select the articles. Um, yeah. Having, you know, only four. Some other good ones I enjoyed, besides the ones that Carl mentioned, was um, one by um, Robert Aceda, um, a pharmacist who um, works with us. Uh, it's on naloxone advocacy in post-acute and long-term care. That one's a really good read. And um, then another fun one in Caregiver's Corner. Um, so this is, I think, great time to share this with families now that it's spring and it's getting a little nicer outside. It's called The Great Outdoors Are Good for Everyone, Especially in Post-Acute and Long-Term Care. <laughs> and um, that's by Aaron Vignier. Amen. Yeah. Well, good. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this May 2023 Carrying on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Elizabeth Gallick and Managing Editor Tess Bird, Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. Take a look at the May issue, available as always without a paywall, at www.caringfortheages.com. And please recommend and share caring with your friends and colleagues. And, you know, if you're on social media, please uh, uh, tweet or linkedin or or facebook or whatever yeah. instagram yeah like like us on linkedin follow us on linkedin where we actually put out some um nice little summaries of some of the columns that way with links yes please do uh, meanwhile dr gallic thank you again for spending your time with carrying on the go and now until next time i'm dr carl steinberg for carrying on the go If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.